Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Today we are joined by Robert E. Lee himself. Well, actually, Dr. Paul Lewanski. Dr. Lewanski has his doctorate in education and is a Robert E. Lee living historian. He portrays Robert E. Lee across the West Coast and is the premier Robert E. Lee living historian out there. Today he joins us to talk about the general and the major events in his life. I hope you enjoy this discussion and learn something about the general of the Army of Northern Virginia. Mr. Lee, how are you today? I'm doing fine, sir. Thank you for taking time out of what I assume is a busy schedule running your college, correct? Uh, and Well, absolutely. And at your request, I did wear my old uniform. Ah, very nice. Very nice. Well, we'll get to all that today. We'll talk about the Civil War. We'll talk about your time as a president of your college that you started. But we want to go back first and start with little Robert E. Lee before he even goes to West Point. Uh, Obviously, your father is Light Horse Harry Lee, distinguished Revolutionary War hero. So I would love to hear more about Light Horse Harry Lee. Uh, did his legacy shape your future as a military leader? What kind of impact did this have on little Bobby Lee? Well, my, my father was much, much older. I was the youngest of the family. And uh, to be honest, I did not see much of him. Uh, he, uh, how he shaped my life was perhaps not what most people think. Uh, well, I understood his, uh, his uh, expertise in, in the military sense. Uh, he was also governor of Virginia, but unfortunately, he was a much better general than he was a manager of his own money. And money came in, but he was a very trusting person, and uh, friends would uh, ask him to invest in real estate, and he would invest in real estate, and there would be a swamp someplace that could not be developed, and he lost his money, and so at one point, actually, was sent to debtor's prison, uh, my mother and I, uh, we had to retire to Alexandria and live with uh, her family. Uh, so in a sense, that shaped me. Uh, th- there were many things that I experienced as a youngster in, in Alexandria that uh, shaped my future uh, as, uh, as a soldier, actually, and ultimately led to me uh, joining the military, going to West Point, becoming an officer. Wonderful. So... You said Light Horse Harry Lee wasn't in your life much. Um, so did you always want to be a soldier? Did you look up to your dad and want to be a soldier? Or is that something that came later on in life? Well, I, I believe that uh, it was definitely something that was in my future. And, and part of the reason was uh, because my mother had no money, uh, she had a very small income from, from her family. And we were living at, at Sufferance in, in Alexandria. Um, I was, I was educated uh, at, at the homes with my cousins. Uh, however, going to college was uh, something my, my older brothers had done. They were adults at the time that I was a very young child. But, but unfortunately, we could not afford to send me to a college. And so the only college we could afford to send me to was the, the new academy at, at West Point. And so... That shaped my future. I became a soldier because it was the only way to get get a, a education that I needed. Um, I was attracted to it because 
West Point was also one of the only colleges that actually offered a degree in, in engineering. It was very innovative at the time. And, and that attracted me. Were you, always, in, were you always interested in engineering or was that just kind of the route you had to take? Well, I liked understanding how things work and, and, uh, and engineering, that's what engineers do. So by going to West Point, it, it, uh, it did lead me into the military life. I, I had no issues with that. Um, the, the price was definitely right for my mother. Uh, it gave me an income through the military to take care of my mother, whose health was starting to fail. Um, but I think what really drew me, in a sense, uh, into, into the military was also, as a very young child, some of the things I, I experienced while living in Alexandria uh, with, um, in, the, in 1812, when, when the British reinvaded our United States and actually occupied Alexandria. And I think that's something that, that always stayed with me for my life. Um, I found that, that I remember the streets of Alexandria being occupied by redcoats, by British soldiers, not being allowed to go into the street because these British soldiers were invading our country and they were actually scooping up young boys about my age to, uh, to run gunpowder on the ships and become what they called powder monkey. And, and my, my, my mother sent me out with my cousins to a plantation well into the country to avoid that. But it always dwelled with me that, that we had to defend our country. So becoming a soldier made sense to me it, 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 in probably the same way that it influenced my father to, to defend our homes. And that's what soldiers do. They defend their homes and the homes of their family, the homes of their friends. So in a sense, that's what influenced me. I had seen my father do it as a young boy. Virtually everyone I, I knew in the city was related to the Revolutionary War and it fought with my father. So it made sense to be a soldier. And, and so I had no issues with it. And it, it seemed like a very reasonable thing to do. Mm, that makes perfect sense. And you talk about that sense of duty and protecting your homeland. And that's something we're going to get to in a, in a minute. And I want to keep that in mind, uh, because I'm sure that's something that influenced you when we get to the Civil War, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, ultimately, I think that was, uh, was the driving factor behind uh, the very hard decision I had to make to stay with, uh, with my state and my home of Virginia. Yeah, that, that's uh, something I want to dig into. This is why I think it's so important that we find out your roots here. Um, so your father, you mentioned, is not in your life much. He has a premature um, demise, which I'm sure has an impact on you. So you're primarily raised by your mother, and your mother has some strict morals that she imposes on you. So how does your mother shape the man you become? Um I've read and heard that you never received a demerit at West Point. So I have to ask, is that because of her rearing? Did, did the morals she uh, instilled in little Bobby Lee carry throughout his life? I, I believe you, you, you might, might say that's the case. Uh, I, I never wanted to disappoint my mother. Um, she, she had suffered enough in her life. Um, I did not wish to add to that burden. And in fact, I wished to take care of her. Um, 
to me, uh, life was very simple. You, you lived with honor. Uh, you honored God. You, know, you, you honored your family. And, and you honored your name. When I got to West Point, I, um, I saw no reason to engage in any behavior that would result in a demerit. And so at the end of my term there, I did not uh, receive any demerits. Now, some people have said I'm the only one to not receive any demerits. Not quite true, actually. And, and I was only number two in my class. Uh, my... Uh, I was, I was beaten out by a young man who um, just edged me a little bit in my mathematics exam. And um, he graduated number one, even though he had a demerit, uh, he was still number one because that was based on his uh, grades. Uh, I graduated number two just behind him, but uh, I did not have any demerits and it was fairly easy to get demerits, but somehow I was fortunate and I think by by living uh, honorably, I was able to to achieve that accomplishment. It's funny. We'll we'll talk about it when we get to the Civil War as well. But uh, you're pretty humble about saying you're only second. Obviously, when we get to the war, we have to talk about Ulysses S. Grant. And you guys already seem to have quite a difference uh, in your time at West Point and as young men. In, indeed. Uh, However, sometimes as we go into real life, uh, uh, grades are one thing and uh, actions are another. Um, also, people mature as they grow uh, older. And um, I, I believe someone like uh, General Grant, a very honorable man, but uh, a little more of a, a, a heck raiser uh, in his youth <laughs> than I was. Uh, he, he definitely enjoyed the... Uh, the, the pleasures of life, uh, whereas I dedicated myself, I, I saw the goal and I just uh, focused on it. And, you know, that that is who I am. So mm -hmm. we, we are different people, but so often come to the same and similar ends. Well, so you say that's the person you are. and You have this this heritage, uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, your mother instills these strict morals in you. You don't get any demerits at West Point. Do you think that you're also related to the Washington family, right? You're uh, married to a descendant of Martha Washington, George Washington's wife. Does this impact you even more? Does this add to this sense of duty? Um, does this make you want to be a soldier even more? What kind of, I mean, you already have Harry Lee as a descendant. Now you're adding the Washington family. So how does that impact you? Well, uh, uh, my, my wife's family uh, was part of the Custis uh, family and uh, she was a Custis now. The, the connection then, some people are not quite sure. Uh, the Custis family was related to George Washington by adoption. She's not, she's not a blood relation. However, uh, her, her mother was indeed uh, a Custis who had been adopted by the Washingtons. So the, it, it is relation to Washington through adoption and obviously by living with the general. Um, did it influence me? Well, of course it did. Uh, general, general Washington was someone people remembered that I knew. Uh, as, a, as a very young child, uh, I remember living in Alexandria and uh, talking to the postmaster who had served with my father and General Washington, who did come to town occasionally and visit my mother when he, when he was still alive. The 
the Marquis de Lafayette actually on his uh, farewell tour just before he passed away, toured the United States and made a point to come visit Alexandria, visit my mother, and I was introduced to him. Um, the heroes of the revolution who fought for for their 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 freedom from uh, the tyrant that was uh, the British Empire at the time uh, weighed heavily on me and made a great impression. Now, the other thing that that definitely influenced me from my father was um, he enjoyed drink, and that often led to his problems. Um, he would he would uh, drink heavily, and uh, that led to him loaning money that he never received back, and ultimately going into bankruptcy. Um, people have asked me why I'm a teetotaler, and and to be honest, uh, people say, "Don't General Lee." They asked me, "Do do you not enjoy drink?" And I said, "Oh, far from it, but I'm afraid that I might enjoy it too much." And so it was easier for me to just abstain from hard drink than, than to worry about what's too much. Uh, it seemed like the best way to avoid the situation my father had gotten into and also honor him because he was a great soldier when he wasn't in his cups and I could be a great soldier by avoiding those issues. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely, <clears throat> again, bringing Grant up to it, that's definitely something people like to bring up to him. So it does help uh, to just avoid it altogether. So you have this great military heritage. I don't think anyone can argue against that. You have strict rearing. You talked about your morals, staying away from the drink. So you go to West Point. You are second in your class, no demerits. You go there for engineering. And once you graduate, you serve in many different posts as an engineer. Uh, so does this have an impact on you and help you during the Civil War? We talked about uh, a few minutes ago how engineering, you were curious, you wanted to learn how things work. So does this time serving as an engineer have a big impact on you when you become a Civil War general? Oh, absolutely. And, and people, I think, sometimes misunderstand what engineers do, especially in military. Uh, as a brevet uh, second lieutenant, I was sent to... Uh, to help build forts along the East Coast uh, to, again, repel the British and possibly the French or Spanish who might try to retake the previous colonies. Um, I learned much from the experienced engineers. I learned what fortifications were, what fortifications worked and what didn't work. Um, it, it was uh, a, a trial by fire, so to speak, uh, but it started to make me understand how battles worked and, and how defensive wars worked. Many people think a war is just, you know, attack and attack and attack, and that is only part of it. Very often wars are won by how you defend and how you protect yourself. And I think that's what uh, I gained from that those early days. Um, when we came to the uh, Mexican War, um, it came to serve me well. And uh, later when I was stationed out in the, uh, in the wilds of Texas, in San Antonio, Texas, where I ultimately had command of the US Second Cavalry, um, fighting with the, uh, the Indians, 
who were having depredations upon the settlers in Texas, um, I was able to apply some of those things, uh, fortifications to help defend against uh, roving bands of Indians or bandits, uh, and ultimately the, the Mexican army, which was a very well-trained army, and we had our hands full with them during the Mexican War. So you bring up the Mexican War, and I would love to transition into that next. So your time as engineering definitely has a big impact on the Mexican War, definitely has a big impact on the Civil War. I also want to ask, while you're in the Mexican War, you serve under Winfield Scott, this great American hero, right, serves in the War of 1812, serves in some of the Indian Wars. Obviously, he's a part of the Union when the Civil War joins, uh, breaks out. So what impact does serving under this great American hero have on uh, young Robert E. Lee? Well, uh, General Scott uh, uh, could be very intimidating. Um, many of his junior officers uh, would refer to him as old fuss and feathers, Scott. <laughs> and because he, he was very demanding of his office and his, and his men, and he demanded military discipline. Uh, even in the field, he demanded clean uniforms or as clean as you could get them. But he respected the soldiers and he respected the men who could carry out his commands. Um, during the war, as we, as we drove into Mexico, we, we came up on Chapultepec, a, a very heavy, uh, uh, heavily defended fort. Now, as I said, as a junior officer, I had helped build forts and rebuild forts. And the Mexican army, had been trained by some of the best soldiers in the world. They were probably the, the, the best soldiers for us to fight against in, in all of North America. They were easily the equivalent of the British, but they were behind heavy fortifications. And General Scott knew that a frontal assault would mean very heavy casualties. Uh, he respected his men, wanted to minimize that. Now, one way to do that is to take your guns, and by that I mean cannons, of course, and try to get them on the flanks, in other words, to the side, so they, we could fire with what's called enfilade fire, which meant coming in out from the sides, and that could help break down the, uh, the forces opposing us. Unfortunately, the, the ground that we would need to do that was wonderfully situated, but there seemed to be no way to get to that. The, the, the Mexican uh, civilians that we talked to just said that ground was impassable. There were no roads through it, but we needed to get our cannons there. Our scouts came back and said that it was impassable. It was impossible to get the, the cannons there. And uh, General Scott looked to me and asked, Captain Lee, if he would find a way to get the guns there. We, we found a way through boulders and desert and soft sand and hard pan, but we managed, it took almost three days to get the guns into position. I did not sleep for all that time. Um, <laughs> wow. I, I was fortunately, we were under fire. Um, my coat had several holes in it, but none of them managed to reach me. Um, 
the end result was we got the guns in position and were able to storm Chapultepec and, and carry the day, which put, put the, the uh, French trained Mexican army uh, to fight. And ultimately uh, we were able to win that war. Um, General Scott appreciated what I did. I received a field commission advancing my rank to major and uh, he made me part of his general staff as a result of that, which, which does kind of take us back to uh, a young officer by the name of Lieutenant Grant that uh, I did not recall many years later. I knew the name, I knew who he was obviously as my opposing general, but <laughs> we had met in the Mexican war very briefly. Um, after, after my exploits with the cannons, um, I was basically put in charge of, uh, of receiving incoming dispatches and passing through couriers who would uh, uh, then be able to present the, uh, the incoming dispatch to the general. But as I said, he was known as old fuss and feathers and refused to receive any officer who was not in proper uniform. And so as I was awaiting the incoming dispatches. Here comes this young lieutenant. He is covered in mud. He is <laughs> dirty. His, his uh, coat is undone. And I took one look at him and I knew that if I sent him in, first the general would, would uh, send him out and he would be in trouble. And secondarily, I would be in trouble for letting him pass, knowing, knowing that. So I turned to young Lieutenant Grant around and said, before you can give those dispatches to the general, please go put on a clean uniform, which he did. And uh, to be honest, I had done that many times with young officers who brought in dispatches to the general. And I thought no more about it until many years later at a town called Appomattox, uh, when I met then now General Grant, um, as we concluded the surrendering of my army to him, he actually apologized for the fact that he was in a dirty uniform because he had just ridden in, having ridden about six hours through the mud of Virginia to get to uh, Appomattox Courthouse. Um, I did not remember that until later, but uh, it, it, it just goes to show, I think, that God puts us in, in different places when we need to be. Mm. Well, you talked about Chapultepec. You mentioned you didn't sleep. Uh, I've heard that it was 50 hours you didn't sleep for until the battle had ended. So <clears throat> is this Robert E. Lee's mentality not to rest until the job is done? Uh, is this a result of your military heritage, maybe your strict, scrupulous upbringing? Uh, but I can't imagine many people willing to go 50 hours without sleeping. Well, uh, I believe, I don't know if it was just my upbringing, but it was definitely something... If you, if you have a job and you've been asked to do it, then you do it to the best of your ability. And if that means you can't sleep for 50 hours, then so be it. Now, many of my men did not sleep for 50 hours. Um, I don't know if it was because of their upbringing or the fact that I was driving them, but we were soldiers and we had a goal and the honorable soldier carries through no matter what. And if it took 50 hours, uh, that, that sounds about right. It was definitely over three days. Um, but 
we, we push ourselves to do what we need to do. And we were fighting for our country at that point and to accomplish our goals, that's what we needed to do. So I, I suppose my upbringing influenced me there, but I'd like to think also it was love of, of my uh, country at that point. Mm-hmm. It'd be great if we had more people who wanted to do their job that well, <laughs> especially some of our students that they're listening. Definitely keep that mentality, not to not sleep, but, but to do your job well. So you serve in the Mexican-American War. You serve under Winfield Scott, but he's not the only general that you serve under. Grant's not the only general you run into. You also serve alongside future generals like Beauregard, Thomas Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, uh, George B. McClellan. So does serving alongside with these generals in the Mexican-American War about 20 years prior to the Civil War. Does this have an impact on your relationship with them come the Civil War? Perhaps when you face off with McClellan, does this help uh, give you an edge over him, perhaps? Well, I, I believe that it helped me to understand him. Um, one of the things that I like to do is, is study and remember people. Uh, as, a, as an officer, you have to understand not only the officers that serve under you, but also the officers that serve alongside you and even above you. So whenever you're, you're serving with someone, I always remember, what did they like? What did they tend to do in different situations? Um, General Beauregard actually uh, had seniority in the Confederate Army over myself. Um, so I technically reported to him, uh, other than the fact that uh, President Davis uh, uh, liked me and trusted my opinion. So I served as his attache and military advisor. But I understood General Beauregard. I understood uh, General Jackson. I knew what I could depend on them to do. I knew what they would react to in different situations. The same was true for those officers that chose to stay with the Union when the South seceded. I, I had seen them in action. I knew what they tended to do. I knew how they tended to react to stress. And not all men react in the same way. Not all officers react in the same way. But with General McClellan, I, I knew that General McClellan tended to be cautious and tended to be very cautious oh, oh, often, very often. Um, overestimating his opponent. He uh, often would assume that if his scouts told him that I had 10,000 men, that I must be a clever person that I am, have 20,000 hidden someplace. <laughs> and so he moved very cautiously. I think I understood him better than he understood me. And all my past associations with these officers in numerous different ways um, indeed did help me to uh, achieve the ends that I was being asked to achieve by our president. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that would have some sort of impact. So you serve alongside Beauregard, Jackson, McClellan, and this obviously impacts you, as you just said, in the Civil War. So the Mexican-American War ends, you serve with distinction, you serve alongside these generals under Winfield Scott, and then you take the superintendent position at West Point. And a student there is going to be one of your, uh, your main scout during the Civil War. So Jeb Stewart. 
So did you know him when he was a student at West Point? Obviously, you knew uh, Thomas Stonewall Jackson from the Mexican-American War. Do you know Jeb Stewart when he's there? And if so, does it help build your relation come the Civil War? I, I did know the young Jeb Stewart. Uh, um, he, he was, uh, in many ways, a, the young cavalier. He, he definitely uh, came from a family in, in Virginia that was well known to, to most people, but particularly to, to uh, my family as well. Um, I, I, he was very bright. He, he understood how to use horses. Um, he understood and honed his skills uh, at West Point and uh, showed uh, extreme aptitude to working with horses and mounted cavalry. Um, after his time at West Point, we recommended that he uh, engage with, uh, with the cavalry and he was sent out West to fight in the Indian Wars um, where he definitely learned the practicality of uh, and logistics that are needed for cavalry in the field against a hostile force. So um, I did not see him again after that until um, actually a number of years later, just as uh, states were deciding whether to secede or not, I was on leave. Um, my father-in-law had passed away at Arlington Plantation, uh, which was one of about three plantations that he owned. Uh, my wife was there. She often did not travel with me. Uh, the, coming out west to, to the, the small town of San Antonio would have been very difficult for her and on the children. So she stayed with her father, which is not uncommon for a lot of military wives. Um, but when her father passed away, I was named executor. And so I took leave and was given leave to uh, return to Arlington and uh, carry out the uh, dictates of his will, which were numerous. And, and unfortunately, he had uh, something of the same problem my own father had, which was he was not a great money manager. So part of my job was to try to bring the plantations up to where they needed to be so that they could then be distributed among his heirs. Now, I want to get more into that uh, in a second, because I would like to talk about some of the things that you inherit from your father-in-law. Before we jump ahead a little bit, so you knew Jeb Stewart, you're the superintendent of West Point. You don't necessarily want this position, if I'm correct, but you take it anyway. Is this the same sense of duty that you have staying up for 50 hours in the Mexican-American War, remaining loyal to Virginia when the Civil War breaks out? Is this that same duty throughout your life? Well, sir, um, after the Mexican War, the peacetime army was very small. Uh, advancement in rank took a very long time. So when you were offered a position, even if it wasn't to your liking, it was usually advantageous to take it. Uh, taking the, the, uh, taking the appointment to West Point, it was uh, not to my liking. Uh, I wanted something with a little more action, but educating young officers, I understood that I did have something that I could bring there, some practical experience. And that was the point of, of having a military academy was to help these young officers uh, be reasonable officers when they became lieutenants, as opposed to having to learn everything in the field. Um, 
again, you know, it was uh, not necessarily my my greatest and first choice. I would have preferred a command, but that was not offered. So I took what I could. When you're in the army, you, you serve at the pleasure of the commander, not at your pleasure. That's true. I can't imagine uh, you have much say in what you do. I'm not a military man myself, but I would imagine that's how it would go. So you serve uh, in the Mexican-American War. You serve as the superintendent of West Point. And then there are, is some fighting that breaks out in some of the Indian Wars that occur out West. You fight under Albert Sidney Johnston, who's going to take over the Western Theater for the Confederacy before his demise at Shiloh. Uh, does this war against the Indian tribes out there, how do you feel about that war? Do you ever feel regret from it? Did you feel it was just, unjust? Uh, what were your thoughts on that? Well, sir, um, Texas was a state. We had settlers there. Um, I felt that um, the, the natives in the area should be treated with respect. Uh, we are all God's children. Um, however, uh, if they attack the settlers and we must defend the settlers as well and that was the position of the army um when i was assigned uh, ultimately to uh the uh, uh second u.s cavalry uh which was was newly formed and it was formed specifically to combat the the depredations caused by the indians out in texas um I, I moved to San Antonio, and at that point, I had been promoted to lieutenant colonel. Um, ultimately, I took full command. I was second in command of the U.S. Uh, uh, second Cavalry. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, I was promoted to full colonel and given command. Unfortunately, that's just the point where my father-in-law passed away and I had to take that leave and uh, travel back to Virginia to deal with his estate um, and unfortunately that's also when the southern states uh, felt pressed to uh, leave the union right and so your father passes away uh, your father-in-law excuse me you come home and you're dealing with his estate as we mentioned a few minutes ago now, his estate, his estate includes slaves, and you inherit those slaves. Uh, and you've said that you supported their emancipation, and you do eventually emancipate them. So what are your views on slavery exactly? And once the war begins, did you actually want to fight for a pro-slavery cause, or did you dislike the cause and just wanted to fight for your homeland? Well, sir, um, slavery is a, a prickly issue, as they say. Um, personally, I do not really find slavery uh, to my liking. Uh, owning slaves personally, uh, number one, we could not afford it. Slaves, owning a slave is quite expensive. Uh, it would uh, cost just for one slave to work in the field would be about $2,500. And, and that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Many men don't earn that in 10 years. Um, when I inherited, in effect, my wife inherited the slaves with the plantation, um, a stipulation was that um, the slaves would be free. They were to be manumitted. Um, but that was a stipulation of the will. Uh, I had no objection to that. 
However, it was also stipulated that the the plantations must be uh, brought to a point where they can support themselves before they're passed on. For one of the plantations was to go to uh, each of my sons and ultimately Arlington to my wife and thence to me, uh, a place where we might retire when I retired from the service. Um, she was raised there and had a great fondness for the, the place. Now, right away, I knew that uh, I had two opposing things that I had to do. Um, my wife and I knew now when you free slaves in Virginia, there are laws that dictate that. And that's rather difficult to kind of make things happen. Uh, number one, the slave has to agree to be, uh, be manumitted. And some slaves didn't want to do that, uh, oddly enough. You would think that uh, that would be the easiest, but in some cases, um, slaves uh, didn't even, in a sense, know they were slaves. Um, the second thing was they had to be able to support themselves. We couldn't just free them and, and push them out. A field hand might know only one skill, that is how to pick cotton or how to deal with cotton and put it in bales. They each had very specialized jobs. Uh, if we freed them, that was the only thing they could do. They had never had to grow their own food. Uh, it was provided to them, a housing was provided to them. And so they had to be trained. So what I endeavored to do uh, was I actually took our slaves and uh, leased them to surrounding plantations. Now, part of that reason was that I would get money for the plantation, which would pay off the plantation's debts. Um, the slave would be trained perhaps as a blacksmith, perhaps as a, a, a leather worker. But when they came back to me, I gained money, which helped put the plantation back on stable uh, economic footing. The slave had now gained a trade and could support themselves. And last one was that they had to be able to read and write, but it was illegal to teach a slave how to read and write. So there was a uh, two conflicting laws in Virginia. Now, my wife and I, we, we found a way around that because we wanted our slaves to be Christians. And to be a Christian, you must be able to read the Bible. So we taught them to read and write so they could read the scripture. And the state of Virginia allowed that to happen. And so we were able to circumvent that. And indeed, over the course of... Uh, uh, the war, even after the war broke out, I continued to manumit slaves on a plantation that was no longer in my control because it was behind Union lines. And those slaves, by the end of the war, by about the third year, I believe it was, I signed the final manumission papers and there were no slaves under my control or my wife's control anymore. Um, you asked if I, if I believed in it. I believe that slavery can be as, uh, as harsh to the master as it is to the slave. It can erode the soul to be, have that much power over another human being. So do I believe in it? I, I don't believe in, in it, um, but it was a thing that existed and we had to deal with and I did what I could. So you fight for the South, which we're 
almost two at this point in your story. But before that, John Brown leads a raid on Harper's Ferry in Virginia, a famous abolitionist born in Connecticut. He gets uh, some runaway slaves along with his sons, and they go in, take over the armory, and they want to begin a slave rebellion. You are sent in to put down this rebellion. So we just talked about your views on slavery. So how did you feel about the rebellion? If, if you're not pro-slavery, but you are pro-union, uh, what are your views on John Brown and on this rebellion he tries to lead? I, I believe that John Brown was a man who felt his, his, uh, his faith very deeply. Uh, I do not agree with him. I do not think that a rebellion in which... Uh, in which, uh, uh, you know, families would be killed, children and women would be killed by rebelling slaves. Fomenting that kind of rebellion was was wrong. Uh, there were better ways to do it. Um, but John Brown, as a person, uh, in a sense, I agreed with his, his basic premise that slaves should not be slaves, that we should not enslave other people. But he was breaking the laws of the United States. He was uh, inciting civil unrest. Now, although I was on leave, I was a ranking officer as a full colonel in the Washington City area. So General Scott, through his subordinates, asked me to come to Washington, and I was given given command of a detachment of Marines who had a barracks at the 8th and I Street in, in Washington City. Um, there was a uh, Captain Israel Green was their commanding officer, as I recall. And we, we went to Harper's Ferry where Mr. Brown had, had barricaded himself with his sons and, and some followers. Um, in the armory there. Um, and they would not come out and they had hoped that uh, they would uh, foment this uh, insurrection in, in the Southern states, which did not happen. And were unfortunate for his cause, I suppose, but fortunate for those that, that would have been killed for uh, during such a rebellion. Mm. On the way there, I ran into um, a young, lieutenant by the name of uh, Jeb Stewart coming back uh, from uh, our association uh, years previous and he knew me of course and I did uh, know him and so he asked if he could come and join in, in this uh, endeavor he was uh, in between assignments for the army and which is why he was in Washington and not leaving Virginia to visit family so uh Stuart, myself, uh, Captain Green, and his Marines, we came to uh, first uh, attempt to talk to Mr. Brown uh, out of what he was doing. Um, he absolutely refused. Um, we, we had not planned on a frontal assault, but uh, a Marines uh, like to do frontal assaults. So we gave him several chances, and at one point, um, Lieutenant uh, Stewart went forward and uh, and uh, gave him our final uh, demands, uh, which he rejected. Mr. Brown rejected, and uh, we sent Captain Green in. Um, 
we were ill prepared for this. Uh, uh, the, the Marine commander was carrying a ceremonial sword. It was not even the kind of sword you normally carry in the field, but it was all he had because we left so precipitously. Um, the end result was that uh, people died, people were shot. Uh, Mr. Brown was, was shot and rather severely, but uh, he was able to recover and stand trial. Um, his his cause may have been just in his mind. His his methods were illegal, and he suffered the consequences of uh, of not following the law. And you know that's a, a dishonorable thing to do. And that's a, I think uh, uh, why it's important to to be an honorable person. And he lost track of that. He lost sight of that. Well, you put down the rebellion, Harper's Ferry. John Brown gets hung, and the election of 1860 comes up. New Republican candidate, Abraham Lincoln, wins. South Carolina decides to secede from the Union. Subsequent Southern states will, and eventually your home state of Virginia will as well. So you decide to resign from the Army. You turn down the president's offer to be in control of Union forces, and you leave the United States military. Having served in there for 30 years, the Mexican-American War, the Indian Wars out West, are you left with a sense of sadness or regret about leaving this union that you once served and held so dear? Absolutely. It was perhaps the hardest decision I made in my life. Um, I had served the, the United States because Virginia was part of the United States, and therefore I was part of the United States as a Virginian. Um, I, had, I had served, if, if Virginia had stayed in the Union, I would have retained my rank in the U.S. Army because Virginia was part of the Union. In fact, the first time that an ordinance of secession was brought before the legislature to be voted on, Virginia voted against it. They voted not to join South Carolina and the other firebrand states in leaving the Union. However, shortly after that ordinance was rejected, President Lincoln sent forth his uh, edict that the troops needed to be raised from each state in the Union to suppress, as he put it, the rebellion. Now, Virginia felt if, if the Union needed to keep a state in line, they should not ask other states to help them do that, that we should not fight our sister states. And so the ordinance of secession was again brought before the legislature, and this time, instead of just barely not passing, just barely passed. And at that point, I had been offered command of the Union forces, and I unfortunately could not do that. I was a Virginian. Virginia was no longer part of the Union, and I could not, in good conscience, raise my sword against my home and my people. Um, it was just not a right thing to do, and one that I could not do. And so I, I said, as I left the Army, that I would never raise my sword again, save in defense of my home, Virginia. And I was true to my word. Uh, I fought to save Virginia and uh, 
uh, keep it a, a free and independent state that it was. It was not to be, but that's what I endeavored to do. Virginia was my home and I could not fight my home and my own people. Mm -hmm. And you, you kind of mentioned that earlier on when we talked about your sense of loyalty and uh, how you felt towards your family in Virginia. So you turned down President Lincoln and you joined the Confederacy. You're fighting uh, along with your home state of Virginia. Early on, you fight in West Virginia and you are defeated in your first battle. Does this impact your confidence at all at the outbreak of the war? Perhaps do you regret leaving your, uh, perhaps do you regret your decision to leave the Union and join the Confederacy after this defeat? Uh, I don't think I've, I've regretted it. What I regretted was not being able to accomplish the task that was put before me. Now, one can always come up with excuses. Uh, we were ordered into the, the mountainous uh, northwestern region of Virginia in the Appalachians. It was a horrible country in the wintertime, and we went in in the fall. The rains made the roads impassable. Um, we were short of uh, men. We were short of munitions. Um, I could give you a litany of why we were not successful, but I knew we were not successful. Did I regret leaving the Union? Uh, no, because I was doing what my state asked me to do. Um, I understood and reflected on what went wrong and uh, vowed never to... Um, Never, never to repeat those, if at all possible. Mm, that makes sense. So, so you're an engineer, you want to figure out how things work. So you're trying to figure out why you lose and how to not repeat it. So, so that makes perfect sense. Um, you lose in West Virginia and you become close with President Davis and you win the support of the Confederate president. Does this help give you a boost of confidence when it's finally your turn to leave the Army of Northern Virginia after Joseph Johnson is wounded? Uh, in a sense, yes. I, I, I believe uh, I, I have not really lost confidence. Did I gain confidence? It's always good when somebody supports you and tells you that it is what uh, that you've done and accomplish what they want you to accomplish. And, and that was my goal as advisor to the president was to try to point, and there, there are many people who, who would leap before they looked, as it were. Um, that, that's uh, not a good way to run. A, a, a good army is run with much planning and input and most importantly, uh, knowledge of your enemy and their disposition. Um, a good uh, place to uh, defend when you had to fall back. These are all the things. And so by being uh, taken uh, in by uh, President Davis as his advisor, I was able to put uh, my skills and my knowledge to work um, to the good of our country. You mentioned defenses and having a good place to fall back when you're battling. So you oversee the defenses around the city of Richmond, the Confederate capital, and you get a nickname, the King of Spades. Uh, your soldiers are not too fond of digging trenches. And noting to the listeners, this is early on in the Civil War, uh, 1861. As we progress in the storyline, 1865, this will become a more popular thing to dig trenches. But early on, it's very unpopular. So how do you feel about this nickname that your men give you? 
I, I, I tried to take it in stride. It is not the most flattering. Um, indeed, I'm sometimes called uh, old uh, Granny Lee is another one. Uh, Spade Lee was one of the, the popular one. Uh, but you have to understand, and I'd been in the Army long enough to understand, war is a very much a young man's game. And the, the soldiers, they were 16, 17, 18 years old. Uh, our officers were maybe in their 20s, uh, and they were senior. Um, they wanted to take their guns. They wanted to go out and shoot Yankees, and they did not understand what war was. Um, they had not seen the elephant, as we say. And until you see the elephant, you don't understand the need for trenches. Now, I understood very early on, we would be at a disadvantage because we did not have manpower uh, that they have in the North. And so in, in looking at that problem, how do you defend Richmond when you don't have enough people uh, by popular belief in the military to defend a target that large? And the only way I could think about it was to build our entrenchments in such a way that it wasn't just uh, um, barricades and, and uh, trenches and, and uh, mounds of dirt, but to interconnect them so that I could move men. If a Union Army, they wouldn't attack from all directions at once. Even they didn't have that many men. But we didn't know where they would come so conventional wisdom was that you had to have enough men to defend everywhere. Mm -hmm. We didn't. So by having interconnecting trenches, I could move men. When they attacked in the east, I could move men from the west, leaving just a skeleton uh, detachment behind and move all those men. So it appeared we had more men than we had. Uh, this was very innovative. It had not been done. Um, but it meant digging a lot of trenches. And we had, at that point, time. And I had men. And we had spades to dig those trenches with. Um, the men did not like it. But as you had mentioned, after they had seen the elephant, they saw the benefit of those trenches. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it became one of their favorite things. As soon as we stopped, if we knew we were going to be there and in defense, they would dig out those bayonets or uh, even uh, using uh, tin plates to dig in and uh, form their own trenches. I like that. The, so you see the elephant because that's something that, as you mentioned, you're very innovative on because by the time we get to the end of the war, especially when we see Sherman chasing down Johnson in the South, we're going to see a lot of trench warfare. And when it comes time for World War I, we're going to really see trench warfare take off. So that's something that you're way ahead of your time on. So you face off against McClellan and you take over in the Seven Days Battle. You whoop John Pope and the Yankees uh, at Second Manassas. And then you meet McClellan a second time at Antietam. Uh, before the Battle of Antietam begins, your orders are discovered by McClellan and his troops. They're found wrapped up in a cigar. Did you know that he discovered your plans at Antietam? And if so, how did you compensate? Did you adjust? Uh, it sounds like you're very quick on your feet as an engineer on the battlefield, um, or perhaps you weren't even aware he knew of your plans. Uh, I, at first, I was not aware. Um, 
though it became very rapidly. And, and, and just to make sure that you all understand that, that uh, I had subordinate generals to myself. So when I gave command, I would bring in my generals, we would discuss our strategy with my top generals, and then the subordinate generals that uh, commanded brigades and, and so on, they would receive copies of the orders. And so dispatches would be sent out. And apparently one dispatch um, writer uh, had uh, chosen to wrap some, uh, wrap the dispatch to one of my brigadiers in, in his, uh, around some cigars. And then he put it into his dispatch pouch. It slipped out. Um, he rode off not even knowing that. We later determined that the one general on my staff did not receive his orders, and we were able to, um, to, to fix that. However, once we had reached Antietam Creek um, uh, near Sharpsburg, um, it became very apparent that McClellan uh, knew what we were about. However, he very obviously, and I knew that he was very slow to move. He was very unsure of himself. He thought I had more men than I had. He didn't know where some were. He didn't have a, a cavalry screen like I had with Jeb Stewart, who could report back and tell me the disposition of my opponent. As a result, I was able to react to him and save my army effectively. Now it was at great cost. Uh, to be honest, if I had been in McClellan's uh, position, I probably could have crushed my own army. <laughs> However, McClellan um, withheld and, and uh, he had his last opportunity uh, to destroy my army effectively uh, was lost when he allowed me to withdraw. We, we fought very, very valiantly at, at, at Sharpsburg, more men were lost, more Americans, if you count both North and South, were lost than in any other one day of combat at any time. Um, and McClellan's biggest flaw was he did not trust. He again, thought I had more men. He thought I had reinforcements coming. So he let us slip away. And I was able to save the remnants of my army, uh, which was still largely intact, even though we had taken the heavy, heavy casualties. Um, so much so that Antietam Creek ran red. But um, that, that was... Uh, a, a sad day indeed. I, my men fight valiantly for me. I do not like to see them die for me or for their country if they can, that can be avoided. Well, to put it in perspective for someone listening, uh, that is not just the bloodiest day of the Civil War. That is the bloodiest day in American history. Um, so we have George McClellan going against our guest here, our gracious guest, Robert E. Lee. And so what impact do these high losses have on you? Do you perhaps regret your decisions at Antietam? Um, how do you balance the weight of commands? I can't imagine, you know, you just go into your cot at night and fall asleep like nothing happens. So how do you deal with it? Well, it's, I'm, I'm an old man, I must tell you. At the beginning of the war, I was 55 years old when, when the average age soldier was about 18, 19. So I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of my career. 
however, it gave me a long view of of war. I had seen war at at uh, in Mexico. I had seen war in 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 the West. Um, I knew what it meant, and I knew that those are the things that we pay for in war. War can be glorious if you're winning. It can be horrible even when you're winning because men are dying and they die for what they believe in, which is their country. Um, for the Southerner, we were defending our homes. Now in Tetum, I, I did not really agree with driving into the North. I was not comfortable with that. We were defending our homes. And I think that the Southern soldier was at his best in defending his home. When we drove North, as we did into Maryland, uh, and that resulted in Antietam, and later in the war, as we drove North into uh, Pennsylvania, it was a political and a military necessity to end the war. President Davis felt that the only way we could get the North to recognize our existence as a country was to threaten Washington. And so in both cases, our excursions into the North were not to try to take over the North, not to force North to join us certainly, but to show the North that we were serious and we just wanted to be left alone and that we could indeed threaten Washington City. Not a, not a wonderful thing uh, perhaps, but a necessary thing, and I understood the political need for it. If we could have perhaps or threatened Washington City driving up through Maryland, we might have been able to get the British or the French to weigh in with us and break the blockade. The blockade was beginning to hurt us. Our commerce uh, was very much overseas, and, and so it was very difficult. The northern pushes, I understood uh, from President Davis, were primarily to try to show the French and the British that uh, we were a viable country and we could be a good ally. Uh, and would they come in and break the blockade and free our own ships to go back to, to commerce with Europe? Um, unfortunately, in neither case did that work. Yeah, well, you mentioned trying to gain support of those European powers. And in the aftermath of Antietam, there's not really a victor. I mean, when the numbers are that high, you can't really say victory. Um, it's a strategic victory for the Union. Uh, they can claim it as a victory because they hold the field. As you mentioned, that's your first invasion of the North. Um, and it is to gain political support for the South. But in the aftermath of this, Lincoln uses this quote-unquote victory to issue his Emancipation Proclamation. And a lot of the reason that the president does this is to keep England and France from supporting the Confederacy by truly making it a war over slavery. So were you surprised by Lincoln's decision to issue this proclamation after he explicitly stated uh, that the war was not about slavery? And what sort of impact did this have on the Confederacy? I would say surprise, no. Uh, Mr. Lincoln is a politician. Now, I dealt with uh, Mr. Davis, who's also a politician. Politicians are not soldiers, though 
both Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Davis had served. Uh, in fact, Mr. Davis graduated from West Point and he served as uh, uh, the uh, Secretary of the Army, uh, Secretary of War in, in, in the North prior to the war. He'd been a U.S. Senator. But he was a politician at heart. Mr. Lincoln was a politician at his heart. Um, I'm not surprised. He needed to do something. His, his own uh, newspapers were definitely fighting against him. They told him, they were, they were just saying, just let the South go. We shouldn't be losing our boys. The casualties were, were horrendous. And so there was demand. Um, if the union was now disunion to just let it go. Uh, Mr. Lincoln needed something to unite his country. And so in effect, he made it a holy war. He, he held up slavery as the main issue. Now it was a platform for his party. Uh, they were anti-slavery and abolitionists. Uh, there are many abolitionists actually in the South as well that did not believe in slavery. Um, they did not hold political power as Republicans gained in the North. Uh, so your question was, was I surprised? And not really. Um, it was a, a clever sleight of hand because in effect, his, his proclamation had no real effect. He freed slaves in territories where he had no control. And he let slaves in the slave states that had been retained by the Union, such as Maryland, remain enslaved. So it was, like I say, a political sleight of hand for Mr. Lincoln. He didn't lose anything, but he gained the, the, um, the good relations with uh, the Queen in Britain. Uh, by making this, this rather grandstand uh, uh, approach. But uh, for the poor slaves, it had very little effect. Saying that a slave in Mississippi was free um, really had no impact on that slave. But saying that a slave in Maryland was still a slave, I think had a great impact. But as I say, I'm not a, a believer in slavery. Um, but it was, it was a, a, a strange uh, proclamation, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see that, trying to not inflame those border states so they leave, but also getting enough for the rest of the world does not back the Confederacy up. So you take over at the Seven Days Battle, you win at Second Manassas or Bull Run. As a Southerner, I know you refer to it as Manassas. Uh, you beat draw, I guess we should say, uh, McClellan at Antietam. You, you win at Fredericksburg. And early on in the war, we talked about how you were digging entrenchments outside of Richmond. At the Battle of Fredericksburg, you're using trenches again. And you're really doing something that no other generals are doing in the war at this point. Uh, you seem to have realized that these Napoleonic tactics, these frontal assaults, um, flanking maneuvers aren't quite working uh, like they were in the early half of the 19th century. Is it your engineering background that allowed you to see that war had advanced and the tactics needed to advance when your peers were not realizing this? Well, I, I would think so. Um, 
partly it just made sense to me. Um, things had changed. We now had rifles. Uh, the the development of the Minier uh, bullet. Uh, the, the, the men like to call them mini balls and, and understanding that a ball is just a, a bullet is all that means. It doesn't have to be spherically shaped, but mm -hmm. the idea that, that uh, rifles were much more accurate, but very difficult to shoot because the bullets had to actually be oversized and it took you at least twice as long to ram that bullet down the barrel because it was cutting into the rifling the, the grooves in the barrel and that spun the bullet when it left and it was difficult to do so there were very few rifles because your rate of fire went down uh, captain minier and the french army uh, developed a bullet that could be loaded as easily as a smoothbore but engaged the rifling when fired and became as accurate as as any other rifle um, Men, all, all armies, North and South, had been issued these weapons, and suddenly we were reaching out and accurately hitting people. So it was unnecessary to have mass fire with the hopes of hitting somebody. Indeed, uh, what we, we tried to do was mobility and rate of fire started to become more important. Um, Napoleonic tactics... Um, involved moving blocks of men. And, and there is indeed a place for that still. Uh, I was trained in those tactics. However, um, they must be used very judiciously, otherwise they can backfire on you. And that's more or less what happened to me at Gettysburg. A number of things lined up and I, I fell back on a Napoleonic tactic that that uh, did not work and resulted in the decimation of my army and me being forced to withdraw from the field. Yeah. Um, so obviously you say that you're trained in Napoleonic tactics like your peers, but I don't think you give yourself enough credit there because you are a little bit, um, quite a bit ahead of your time, really. Something we won't see too much of till the 20th century when we get to the First World War. So Antietam's over. Your first invasion of the North is done. You win at Fredericksburg. And then the Battle of Chancellorsville occurs. And this is another victory for your armies, but it's a loss because you lose one of your core commanders. You lose General Stonewall Jackson. He's shot and killed by his own men. So what kind of impact does this have on you both immediately and in the long term? Uh, and what kind of impact does it have on the Army of Northern Virginia? General Jackson was one of my uh, key lieutenants. Uh, he and General Longstreet were my, my closest, uh, uh, closest generals that I could confer with. And they, they, General Longstreet tended to be uh, a little more um, reflective and like to fight from advantage, is how I'll put it. General, General Jackson was very much the the uh, the fighter that went out in front he he was very aggressive mm -hmm. and they balanced each other very well and uh they would offer innovations from both perspectives then allowed me to pick or choose or combine and um when when general jackson 
Uh, we, we took a, a great risk there. Uh, I divided my army, even though I was smaller than my opponent. I divided my army, let General Jackson take his and do a flank march. In other words, go around the end of the enemy and effectively come up behind and drive them off their line. He was very successful. Uh, it did leave us in a precarious position. Even though we had won the day, my men were all mixed up and we weren't sure where they were. So General Jackson, um, regretfully, uh, took it upon himself to go out and find where his lines were. Uh, because lines were so mixed up, uh, men of the 26th North Carolina heard horses coming down a dark, rainy road, thought it was approaching cavalry from the Union, and opened fire, uh, striking General Jackson. Now, he lost his arm. And in fact, I visited him in hospital and, and my, my remark to him was that uh, General Jackson, you may have lost uh, um, your, your left arm, but I have lost my right arm. And uh, I was uh, dead serious about that. Unfortunately, he contracted pneumonia and died uh, shortly thereafter. And I truly had lost my right arm. General Longstreet was later wounded rather severely as well, and I did not see him for several months. Um, so it was, it was very difficult to, um, to uh, bring up subordinate officers uh, to have the same attitude and, and same uh, uh, creativity on the field that, that Jackson and Longstreet had had. And uh, we, we mourned General Jackson uh, we we uh, missed him greatly. It was uh, uh, his uh, his strength. Uh, he was a strong believer in the Almighty, uh, but uh, unfortunately, we lost him. And uh, again, I, I missed him as someone to to discuss plans with and and make decisions with because he had a unique unique views on, on how to move armies around. And he could get his men, his men could move so rapidly as infantry, we called them foot cavalry. <laughs> because they could, they could move nearly as rapidly, nearly as rapidly as a cavalry command could. It's very impressive. And you can't build that kind of rapport. You can't force that, right? So- No, you, you it takes Jackson, time. Yeah, you and Jackson's relationship, Yours in Stonewall, I'm sorry, yours in Longstreet's relationship, all meshed together and really have these solid two cores under your command. So you lose Jackson at Stone at Chancellorsville, but you do win. However, you suffer 13,000 casualties, which is a higher percentage of your army than the 17,000 suffered by the Union forces as they had a larger army. Some even critique you, General, and say that you get overly confident after Chancellorsville. Do you agree that this does happen, that perhaps you get overconfident? Perhaps Chancellorsville wasn't quite the victory it seemed at the time. What do you think about that assessment? Perhaps uh, overconfident, I do not know. I, I have always <laughs> been confident. I've been confident in my men. Mm -hmm. um, and it is easy when you have such uh, fighting men as I had never seen before in the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, they, they were indeed uh, 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 brilliant in the field. However, we more and more had to depend on fewer and fewer. And 
So I needed to take those chances or we had no chance at all. Um, I had fewer men, um, fewer weapons, and we needed to take the, the chances. Is I'm not a gambler. However, I'm familiar with the games of chance. And sometimes you, you have to run a gambit um, to win. And uh, we ran our gambit. Unfortunately, the Almighty saw fit not to let the, the, the cards fall in our direction. Um, but you pray and you do what you can um, with what you have. If it if it came down to the fighting spirit of the men, I I would put the Army of Northern Virginia against any army in the world. I like that because sometimes you are portrayed as this overconfident gambler, um, but you're saying your confidence lies in your men, in their ability, and not your own. So Thomas Jackson dies, uh, as you said, he uh, dies not of his wounds, but of an illness he contracts later. So you're left with the task of filling these massive shoes. So instead of picking one new Corps commander and continuing to have two Corps in the Army of Northern Virginia, you decide to appoint Dick Yule and A.P. Hill as new Corps commanders. So why did you decide to divide that Corps into two new Corps and have three instead of just leaving two Corps in the Army of Northern Virginia? I, I had issues with having to promote generals who are not familiar with dealing with large groups of soldiers. Um, being a good company commander does not mean that you're gonna be a good brigade commander necessarily. It is a learning experience and how you can uh, deal with a company uh, sometimes has nothing to do with how you can deal with the brigade. And in, in much that way, bringing a brigade commander or a battalion commander up to suddenly commanding a corps um, is, is stressful and a learning curve. Um, I had two generals who were competent at where they were, but not comfortable with what I was going to demand of them as a corps commander. By dividing the corps uh, and, and going to three corps instead of two, it, uh, it gave them more closely similar numbers of what they were used to dealing with. Um, war is one, not always at the battlefield, but at the logistics of supplying that battlefield. And that's often the challenge of a, of a, a Corps commander is to ensure that those logistics are there and understand how those logistics flow for the much larger group of men in a Corps than in a brigade. So uh, the, the, that was my way of thinking that, that, that perhaps this would make their transition better and most importantly, faster. We did not have the luxury of time for them to learn the job. Yeah, that makes sense. We see that throughout the Civil Wars that sometimes being a good commander at this level does not necessarily mean that's going to uh, translate itself to a higher level of command. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this discussion with Robert E. Lee. I hope you learned something about the General's life and his time during the American Civil War. I also hope you'll join us next week as we continue this discussion talking about the Gettysburg Campaign, the surrender at Appomattox, 
and Lee's time as a president of Washington College after the war. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast and share if you enjoyed, and we hope you have a great week.